everywhere in general. Right now I'm moving, and so there's no Christmas lights anywhere at my house except in boxes. Um, and they're not plugged in because that would start a fire. Um, but I love Christmas. And for a long time it was the music, and then it was uh, putting lights up, and then it was uh, shopping for gifts, and then it was because I got engaged on Christmas Eve, and, and there were all these reasons. But the the more I've grown in my, my love for Jesus and, and understanding his love for me and who he is and what he's about, I love Christmas because there is, I don't know another time in our collective cultural life together as a nation and as a people where there are more echoes of the gospel around us, where the hunger of our souls is more uh, transparent and visible and apparent to all of us. You see, uh, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes uh, that God has written eternity on the hearts of men and women. Uh, that He has actually put a longing inside of you uh, to seek out and to search for God. Uh, the great writer C.S. Lewis used to call these memory traces. That deep down inside of us, we have memories of time when there was a relationship with God in perfection. And there's this hunger that wants that again. Uh, maybe for you, uh, you, rem- you, you realize that hunger uh, when you experience the birth of a child and you felt the wonder of it and and there in the moment of holding your child you said there's got to be somebody to thank for this gift like there's got to be someone to thank for this and it was an echo of that but we see these all around us we see them um, especially at christmas because christmas every christmas movie every christmas advertisement has to take the message the goal the gift of the gospel and convince you that it's not found in Jesus, it's found in a new Lexus, it's found in a new Mercedes, it's found in uh, being nice to one another. And we see this everywhere. And we see, um, this week I want to talk about uh, one aspect of the gospel. And that Christmas is about little people having a big impact, right? Every, think about the Christmas movies, right? Christmas movies where a little person saves the day, where a little person saves Christmas. Think about uh, Tiny Timmy uh, rescuing Scrooge's heart and changing Scrooge and, and changing Scrooge's and, and changes the whole town. Tiny Timmy with his little crutch or Kermit the Frog. Think about uh, the elves. Do you, you remember the movie Tim Allen and the uh, Santa Claus? And there's little elves who come in and rescue uh, Tim Allen when he gets locked in prison. Think about that little girl on 34th Street. Uh, think about Macaulay Culkin defeating uh, the big, bad Harry and Marv in back-to-back Home Alone Christmases. And don't think about Home Alone 3, 4, 5, 6, or 7, because those are an abomination under the Lord. <laughs> think about that little boy who plays the drums in Love Actually while that girl sings the Mariah Carey song. It's all over us. There's this desire, this hope that at Christmas, the insignificant, the small, the overlooked, the child, the put off to the side, could somehow be brought into the forefront. That our movies echo this desire of our heart, that the little people have value, that those insignificant ones, those people uh, that seem insignificant can have great impact And if we look at this story, we start to see uh, one such person, one such insignificant person. We're going to start in verse 26. In verse 26, the Bible says this. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Pause right there. God sent an angel where? An angel Nazareth? You know Nazareth is small because the Bible has to then clarify to Nazareth, comma, a town in Galilee. That is a place so small that the Bible knows you don't know where it is. 
because no one knew where it was. Nazareth, according to our best estimates, at the time Jesus was born and grew up, had between 400 and 500 people in it. Tiny uh, place. It is a place uh, that is on the border of Israel, the tiny north border of the wilderness in Israel. It is beyond the borders of civilization, beyond the walls of respectable society. When I've been trying to think of a way to, um, to help you guys imagine this, I thought first of uh, maybe like an, Ig- an Eskimo community in the, the far northern tundra because Nazareth is in the north of Israel. And then I decided that it'd probably be more helpful for us to think about a tiny village in the backwoods of Puerto Rico. Technically the United States, but so far out, so far different. And there, to imagine a young woman who doesn't look a whole lot like us, who speaks a language, she speaks the same language, but so accented that you and I struggle to understand it. This is a tiny town. It is so small. One of the reasons the Bible have to say a town in Galilee is because the town Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere else in ancient documents until 200 years after Jesus is born. It just doesn't appear. Nobody knows where Nazareth is unless you're there. I was trying to think of places. I actually like Google. Towns less than 500 people in North Carolina. And there are a bunch. The most surprising on the list for me was Bath. I would have guessed Bath had more people than um, 412 or whatever it was. But this is a place. It reminds me of a place in uh, South Carolina called Possum Kingdom. Possum Kingdom is outside of Wahala, which is outside of Westminster, which is outside of Clemson. Near Seneca. It is a tiny place. Uh, South Carolina, University of South Carolina fans will tell you the way to get there is drive south till you smell it and west till you step in it. That one's for you, Stenson. Um, but so he's out here in the middle of nowhere. This is a town so small. It's a one, a one stoplight town, a one post office town, a one schoolroom, uh, a one schoolhouse town, a one horse town. This is a town so small that your school teacher is your aunt, the rabbi is your cousin, and the sheriff is your sister's ex-boyfriend, which means you're always in trouble. <laughs> this town is so small, if you blink, you might miss it. It's so small that you could spit across it if you were that unrefined kind of person who lives in a 400-person town and might spit. And so why in the world is God sending an angel to Nazareth, to the middle of nowhere? Let's keep going. It says, more importantly, we see that he sent the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel, uh, we know from the other, uh, from Daniel, the book of Daniel, is that he is an archangel. He is an archangel. He is an angel above angels. He is a, a, one of the head chief angels. And an- Gabriel only appears one other time in the Old Testament when he appears to Daniel. And that Gabriel is sent to this nowhere place to appear to whom? Let's find out. Verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. I'll stop right there for just a second. That God sends the angel Gabriel, one of his highest lieutenants, he sends to this nowhere place so small it's not named anywhere else, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. God sends this person to a no one, to a woman who has no pedigree, 
Think about again like we talked about last week. Last week when we were introduced to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, we were given their pedigree. Zechariah was a priest of the family of Abijah, of the clan of Aaron. And Elizabeth also was a descendant of Aaron. They had a pedigree. They were from a priestly line. We don't aren't told anything about this woman's family. She, uh, we can assume that she has no noble pedigree. She has no uh, royal pedigree. She has no priestly family. She doesn't appear to be be somebody from the the higher classes or from any kind of uh, civilized uh, family in in the way that we would think now. She is not a genteel lady. The only thing we're told about her is that she is engaged to a person from the royal line, a man named Joseph. But for all we know, she's a commoner. As I thought that, I thought, she's just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She didn't take any midnight trains, but... She got a midnight vision. The Bible adds no accolades to her, no qualifications, no adjectives to her. It doesn't tell us anything about her. It doesn't tell us if she's righteous. It doesn't tell us if she's God-fearing. It doesn't tell us if she's religious. It doesn't tell us if she's industrious, if she's hardworking. She doesn't tell us any of, the, any of the qualifications in Proverbs 31 that a, a great wife should be. It doesn't tell us any of that stuff. It doesn't, all it says is, is that she's a virgin, which is an adjective both about her marital status, meaning she's not yet married, but is also about her sex life. And the angel appears to tell her that she will bear a miraculous child who will be called the Son of the Most High God. And we see this in what he says. He says, And greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And he goes on and says, The angel said to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are, call, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This woman in the middle of nowhere, with no pedigree, with no identity, I mean, it hit me for the first time that the Bible actually names her after it describes her. That She doesn't even have a name until the Bible finishes telling you that she's betrothed. It's almost like you're not going to, like the the name Mary is not going to help you in a place called Nazareth that you don't know about. This small town girl, through her, God is going to bring about the grandest part of his redemption plan. Through her, the climax of God's entire redemptive history, everything God has been doing from the creation of the world is crescendoing, and it climbs to the crescendo right as it reaches that point. We are in the boondocks with a woman with no credentials, with nothing to her resume. The Bible tells us nothing about it. And so who needs Christmas? Who needs Christmas this year? The answer here, last week we talked about those who were faithful but disappointed with where God had brought them and what God had or had not given to them. This week we're going to talk about those who feel too insignificant, too ordinary, too small, too plain, too country, too uneducated to be used by God. Who needs Christmas? Those who need to know that God sees them, and God is not committed to the highborn or the well-bred or the elite educated. It is hard for us as a mainline church, for a slightly well-to-do church like ours, to remember this. But God rarely, God rarely used powerful people with status and fame 
to accomplish his grand plan. In fact, God delights in using the foolish ones is what, um, what Kelly reminded us of, that God loves to use the lowborn. God loves to use the poor, the commoner, those with no name from nowhere places. If we think back again, Abraham and Sarah were wandering Arameans. Modern translation, they were gypsies living in Eastern Europe. They lived in tents. They never had a permanent address. When they filled out job applications and the person said, where do you live? They had to say, I live in a tent behind Walmart. I live in a box underneath the bypass. Where do you keep your stuff? I carry it around on my camel. That's what I call my shopping cart. And they lived that way for more or less their entire lives. Even after they amassed great wealth, they were landless. When Abraham dies, he owns a single piece of land. It's six feet long and two feet wide, and his wife is buried in it. That's the only piece of dirt he owns. Joseph, his uh, great-grandson, was a slave. And once he graduates from being a slave, he becomes a prisoner in prison. He was thought dead, and he eventually does go on to be the second most powerful person in the world. But he starts out, he only does that by God's grace, he starts out in a prison, forgotten for year after year after blessed year. And I don't want to go to prison now in the United States. I really don't want to go to prison 4,000 years ago in Egypt. Moses was a boy orphaned by systemic injustice and genocide who was raised not by his mom and not by his dad, but was raised by a family from a different culture who spoke a different language, who practiced a different religion. And then when he, when, when he graduated from that wonderful, blessed life, he became a convict living out in the desert and working for his father-in-law. You think your life's rough. This week I was reminded of the story of Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon, right? Gideon is out threshing wheat in a wine press. That should stop you for a minute, even if you're not in agriculture. Threshing wheat, you know what wheat is? It looks like grass, and you beat it, and the little tiny pellets fall off the top of it. And he's threshing it in a wine press. What do you make in a wine press? Do you use wheat in wine? No, you don't. So why? Because he lives in a country that is so decimated by invasion after invasion after invasion. He lives in what would be the modern day equivalent of Syria that has been at war for better than a decade to the point where there is no safe place to live and so he's in a wine press because he's because it's the only place he knows to be safe. If he brings his food out into the open in the post-apocalyptic world he lives in, it will be taken from him, stolen from him, beaten from him, robbed from him. And so he has to hide his only rations. The only food he and his family have are this wheat that he is hiding from the invaders and from his neighbors who would steal it from him. And the Lord sends an angel to appear to him there in the middle of his hiding and says, through you I'm going to deliver Israel. And you, don't remember, you remember what Gideon says? Gideon says, the angel actually says, the Lord is with you. And Gideon says, no, he's not. If the Lord was here, would my life look like this? If God cared about me, would my life look like this? Would I be in a wine press trying to save the smallest imaginable amount of food so I could feed my family tonight? If the Lord is with us, why? Why is life like this? And the Lord says, the Lord is with you, and he's going to defeat your enemies through your hand. And Gideon says, I am the 
youngest member of my family. My family is the smallest in our clan. Our clan is the, 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 the least influential in the entire nation. And God says, yep, that's why I'm using you. I looked for somebody smaller, but I couldn't find them. He didn't actually say that. And God uses Gideon. David is a, is a shepherd boy who's too small to even fight in the army. And then in the New Testament, we see that God continues to delight in using those whom the world has passed over as having no wisdom, as having no uh, theology worth listening to, no philosophy worth expounding, who don't know anything about God. Men like uh, the fishermen, who are just menial day laborers, who work hand to mouth to feed their families, who work long, hard hours, who own their boats, and that's about it. He uses tax collectors who are so vile and so treacherous and so demeaning that while they may have wealth, they are spiritually and morally bankrupt. The New Testament church continues this afterwards. And then we see in the New Testament that the New Testament church had elders who were still slaves. Can you imagine that? Can you just stop and imagine that? Can you imagine coming to a church and one of the elders, one of the people who makes decisions governing your church is a slave? And, and his master has to, if his master is a member of that church, his master submits to the elder who is a slave. The New Testament tells us about this. That should just, just as an aside, that should, that should really start to challenge the way we think about whether the Bible endorses slavery or doesn't. When the Bible starts to do that, you've pretty much dismantled slavery from the inside without dismantling it uh, ex- externally Uh, but the bible has apostles who were women it had leading church families that were itinerant beggars who just traveled around staying with whoever would let them in who didn't own anything who had sold everything they had to the poor that the apostle james is uh, one of the most famous jesus's brother pastors the poorest church we know of james's church he never asked for money uh, but they're broke, and so Paul has to send them money from all over the world that God delights in using the small ones. And this Mary is just a kid. And so kids, and by kids I mean uh, high school, middle schoolers, uh, anybody who's in upper elementary, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, but especially if you're in like sixth through twelfth grade, like I'm talking to you right now, I'm talking to you right now, God delights, wants to use you, wants to use you. I am, Mary has no experience She has no life experience. She has no world experience. She has no wisdom. She's never left her hometown. She's never been on a plane. She's never taught a class. She's never gone to a marriage seminar. She's never gone on a a mission trip. And yet God uses her to accomplish the grandest part of his plan. God uses her to train up the Messiah. God uses her to discipline Jesus. Can you imagine a harder task? Right? Like, parents, are your kids ever wrong when you go to discipline them? No, never. Like, they are, oh my, they're never wrong. Well, with Jesus, that would actually be the case. Like, can you imagine how, like, powerless you'd feel trying to discipline Jesus and train him up into righteousness and godliness? And, tra- and, and he's like, yeah, I'm, I came to bring that to you. Without, a sm- without being a smart aleck and sinning and, 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 and mocking his mom? Guys, I am committed to you guys 
I show up at youth group and I take you guys to Arise and I take you guys on middle school retreats because I believe right now God wants to use you to do miraculous, incredible things that I cannot even imagine. And so when we sit in our high school, Sunday school class, I say in this room there's preachers, in this room there's missionaries, in this room there are, uh, are, are, are incredible fathers, in this room there are business leaders who are going to make a bazillion dollars and give more money away than the world has ever imagined. In this room there is somebody who's just going to run and one of the best electrical electrician companies in the entire county and he's going to employ five or six other people and he's going to train them in righteousness and godliness and they're going to be better husbands and better fathers because they work for you in this room there are people who are going to be uh, high school school teachers and high school coaches and, and they're going to teach people not just how to play football but how to be a man how to work hard and persevere how to take correction how to grow through suffering how to grow through failure that God wants to do that through you. And I know you're 12. You know how old Mary was? About the same. Woman's 14 years old, and she's got to parent the Messiah. She's changing his diapers and trying to figure out, how do I teach this kid anything? Don't tell me you don't know. Don't tell me you're too late. Now, 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 now is the time to study theology. Now is the time to go on spiritual retreats. Now is the time to grow in your faith. Now is the time to go on mission trips. Now is the time to beg your parents, not just for another Xbox game, but for $500 to go on the mission trip next summer. Now is the time. You will never have as much flexibility as you do right now. And I know you're like, my parents don't let me do anything. If your parents say you can't go on the mission trip, come talk to me. Now is the time, not just for that, but to preach and to serve, to give your testimony, to learn to read the Bible, to learn to pray. Now is the time to, to, to lead by example. And we've talked about this verse a thousand times, but 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. And I pray if you love Jesus and you are under uh, 25 years old, you memorize this verse. It says, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but rather set an example for whom? For all believers. Who does all believers include? Who does it not include? Easier question. No one, right? All believers. That include the Pope? That include the Pope. Is it included in all believers? Some don't answer that. Some of you guys are like skeptical. It does. It does include the Pope. Does it include your mom and dad? I hope so. Does it include your brother and sister? I hope so. Does it include your grandma? I hope so. But in, does it include us? Does it include me? Does it include the elders of this church? Does it include the musicians? Does it include the staff? Yeah, it does. And it, the Bible is asking you to set an example in speech, in life, in love, in purity, in faith, and in conduct. That you are to set an example, that you are to lead right now. Not when you're 30, not when you got kids, not when you're married. You don't need any of that right now. Right now, just where you are to lead with your faith and your service and so if you don't feel like you have a relationship with Jesus, if this feels like something Andrew talks about, but you, you don't know inside your heart, then I am begging and pleading you to beg and plead with Jesus, to ask him to show himself to you, to show up in your life, to speak to you when you read his Bible. I'm asking you to put yourselves in situations where God can show up in there, where you need God to show up in your life, on, when, to step out on faith and to say, God, if you're real, I'm going to go on this retreat. I'm going to listen to this thing. I'm going to try to pay attention when Andrew gets up there and yells at me for an hour. I'm going to try to understand this stuff. Please show me yourself, Jesus. Please, if you're real, I want to know you. If you're real, would you speak to me? If you're real, would you, would you, would you work in my life in some way? But don't try to box him in what that's going to look like. Don't say, Jesus, it only works if you show up and you burn this bush, burn one, burn one of these poinsettias and replace it with a magnolia tree. Don't try to put him in a box. He'll show up. 
And so the first point today is, God care, the first, one of the first things we learn about Christmas is God cares about the little people, like the smallest people. He cares about the refugees. He cares about the, the sexual assault victims. He cares about uh, the women who work as slaves in this world right now. He cares about the men who are being sold at an auction in Libya right now. He cares about those um, seeking asylum in the United States who are on boats rowing right now. He cares about those people who were held in, uh, in retention camps in the islands off of Australia. He cares about those people pulling shrimp nets offside of Thailand. He cares about them, and he wants to use them in miraculous ways, and he doesn't need people with PhDs, and he doesn't need people with my bank account, and he doesn't need people with a three-bedroom house, and he doesn't need people with a college degree. And so if that's not you, then he wants to use you. He cares about you. And so what makes this more than just an inspirational speech? What makes this more than one of those movies I talked about earlier? What makes this more than Macaulay Culkin just sucking it up and doing what he's got to do and changing the world? What makes this better than Miracle on 34th Street? What makes this, what makes the gospel more than just an inspirational, fluffy Hallmark movie? Is Christmas just that? No, it's not, because you see what makes all the difference. We're not told Mary did anything, not a single thing other than say, let it be unto me as you have said. She says, yes. She says, sure, I, I consent, is what she says. Let it be so. If that's what you want to do, then you got my permission. And then what does she do? Think about this. You know what? Like when Zechariah said, when God told Zechariah, you and your wife will conceive a baby, what did Zechariah have to do? He had to go home and sleep with his wife. That's how you make a baby. If you don't know that, then talk to your mom and dad about it. Uh, if they won't talk to you about it, then force them to. And if they still won't, then I, I can have that conversation with you. But he has to go home and do something. Mary, what does she have to do to conceive Jesus? Nothing. Not, not, not a thing, single thing. She does literally nothing other than say, let it be so. And so it's not a story about somebody who works hard and changes the world. It's not a story about somebody who, who, um, who just puts their will to it and their mind to it and picks themselves up by their bootstraps. This is not somebody who says, I'm going to serve the Lord by golly and gets out and does something great and changes the world. This is somebody who says yes to God and God does something in them that changes the world. And it's all by grace. And you cannot see this word in your English translation, but it's there in verse 28. Remember the angel greets her? The angel says, greetings, you who are highly favored. That's a, an attempt to translate a word. It just says, you who have been graced, is what the Greek says. You who have been given grace. Greetings to you who God has chosen to give grace. And so all of this, everything, everything in the Christmas story is a gift of grace. Humanity was not ready for it. Mary was not ready for it. Mary was not good enough for it. Mary was not uh, great enough for it. Mary was a human being, and she said yes to Jesus, and Jesus showed up in her life because of grace. That he, God wants to transform you and use you all because he loves you and he loves the people next to you. And why you? Why are you a Christian and the person next to you is not a Christian? You're a Christian so you can tell them about Jesus. Like that's the answer to that question always. The person you're worried about, why me, why not them? You, sow them. Um, and so second point is all grace. Third point, what does God want to use you to do? What does God want to use you to do? It's the same thing he wanted to use Mary to do, to bring Jesus into the world, to bring the gospel into the world, to get out of the way and let Jesus shine, to bless all people through you, to make Christians of other people, to introduce others to God's redemptive work. And so the first thing you and I have to do, and I'm just going to give you application points and we're going to finish this thing out. 
First one is you and I have to say yes to, say yes to Christmas. Say yes to Jesus invading your life. Say yes to, to what God wants to do in you. Say yes to Jesus moving in to your heart. What God did in Mary's womb, God will do in your soul. Not grow a literal human being, because that would be terrifying, but to grow, um, but, but Jesus will take up residency in you by the Holy Spirit. God will, I mean, he, you will experience the divine conception in a way that you'll say, I, I can't believe I'm a believer. If, if God can make me a believer, if God can use me, then he could have done that with Mary. I believe in the virgin birth because I'm a believer. Because I'm just that crazy. Like, why else would I? Like, because God showed up in my life and he, he made something conceivable. He's conceived something in my brain that I cannot conceive of otherwise. And so then, as you let that grow, as you nurture that, as you, you let Jesus grow inside of you, and by feeding on his word, by feasting in presence with him, and having intimacy with him in prayer and in community with his family, in community through song, in, in worship uh, through service and serving the world he loves, then Jesus will grow in you until he will come out of you. He will grow too big for your heart to contain the same way he grew too big for Mary's womb to contain and you will have to share him with neighbors and strangers and friends and family. You will have to share the joy. If he is in you and he is growing in you, then you will speak about him. And if, he is, if he's not coming out of your mouth, then you have to ask, what's in my heart? Because the Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, whatever's in your heart will come out of your mouth. And so if the only things coming out of your mouth are negative, then it's because that's what's inside of you. It's not just because you can't hold your tongue. It's because deep in your heart, there's, there's awful negative stuff. And that's where Jesus comes in. He wants to invade in there and change that and transform that. But if he's inside of you, he will come out of you in your speech and in your actions and blessing and serving the people around you. He will come out of your mouth. And I've been reminded of this. Echoes of eternity all over the place. All over the place. You know Christmas is one of the few times you can talk to other people's kids about crazy stuff. Like, I'll just go there. You bring up Santa Claus. Like I can walk, you can, you can walk up to any stranger you want to and say, what are you asking, what are you asking Santa for? 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 Have you seen Santa? Have you talked to Santa? Have you met Santa? Have you done any of that? People, strangers come up to me and my kids talking about this. Do you know how many people have come up to, strangers have come up to me and my kids to talk about Jesus in the last two weeks? Not a one. Narrow one. Not a single one. Not not a single, not a single, sin. you got latitude right now because it's Christmas. <laughs> People give you an inch, you can take a mile. And so I'm just, I want what we are so excited about, what we're joyful about, what our kids are focused about, what our kids are joyful about. Not, I'm not trying to rob Christmas of any of that stuff. I'm just saying, what if I spoke of Jesus as much as I speak of Santa Claus at Christmas? Like, what if? Like, what if we as a church were known for that? How many people would meet Jesus over the next two weeks? How many people would be here on Christmas Eve who don't believe yet? Who don't believe yet? Right now, there are men and women who are watching Elf 
trying to believe in Christmas, believe in joy to the world, and believe in goodwill to human humanity, who believe that there's hope, to believe that the world matters, to believe that this world is worth loving, who just want to believe something, who want to feel warm fuzzies. And that's all a Christmas movie can give you. But the gospel is not about your warm fuzzies, though I think they will accompany it. The gospel is about your transformation. It's not about you feeling better about yourself. The gospel is going to expose that you are far worse than you ever realized. And if there's a naughty and a nice list, there ain't a single person on the nice list. But God does not work like Santa Claus. He does not run a merit-based economy where you earn good things. God works on a grace-based. God works on a I love you based economy. Here's a gift. The Bible says the gift he has given is eternal life through Christ Jesus, his son. Friends, pray today Jesus is conceived in you and that this week he is birthed through you into this world that you become a Christian today and you make Christians this afternoon let's pray